Tonight we have two readings. The first reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, reading to chapter 33, verse 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in verily. When the Lord said to Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So, so I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp and from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart for the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Berizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. The second reading is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, reading from verses 1 to 12. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the des desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, 
and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. This is God's word. Good evening, my name is Phil, I'm one of the ministers here. It's great to have you with us. Do keep that page in the Bible open. Uh, Turn back to Exodus 32, page 90. We're going to work our way through a chunk of that. Let's pray for God's help as we do. Our Father God, we pray that you would speak to us now. We pray that as your word is opened, your spirit would be addressing us. We pray that our hearts would respond with faith and repentance that we would turn away from wickedness and we would delight to trust in the Lord Jesus and live righteous lives. Amen. Look, I'm guessing uh, there is one comedy bit in that reading. I'm glad you all laughed at that ridiculous comment Aaron made. But at various other points, it's hard not to wince at a reading like that. Uh, The passage contains stuff that it's, well, we find offensive if we're honest. At the very least, we find it very hard to justify some of the things that God says and does in that passage. Is this really the God of love and patience and kindness that we see in other parts of the Bible? Is this the the God that we find ourselves wanting to tell our friends about? Look, you've just got to read Exodus 32 with me because I think you'll be so amazed at what you read of God. Actually... The truth is, when our friends who aren't yet Christians point to passages like Exodus 32 and say, how on earth can you be a Christian and follow a God like that? We sort of dread it. Um, We don't really know what to do. But you see, the truth is, when the Israelites seem at their most stupid, and they do look very stupid here, and when God seems most unlike Jesus, as at points he does here, that's actually when we should listen most carefully. Because it usually means that the Bible is sitting right in one of our cultural blind spots. And God has things to teach us. And there are lessons that we need to learn. So it's an important passage for us. You can tell also that it's important from the, the careful structure. Uh, I've put at the bottom of the, the page, um, just on your handout, a thing that just shows how carefully structured this passage is. You can have a read of it later, um, follow it through. But why does, the, why does the writer do that? Well, it's one of the ways in, in Hebrew that you say this really matters. This isn't a sort of passage where they're like, God's just had an off day here, but we'll just write about it and then move on. No, no, he carefully structures this account because this is a very important message. In fact, in many ways, it's the center point of the second half of the whole book of Exodus, what happens here in chapter 32 of the Golden Calf. Now, there is far, far too much for us to get through in one sermon of any reasonable length. So actually, what we're going to do is just focus on the first part, the what happened and how did it happen? Because there are some key lessons for us as we think about meeting God in this first bit. I don't know if you saw the news this week, um, the various Church of England uh, vicars um, issued a report saying that it's about time we, we stopped referring to God just as he. And that for those who prefer it, they should be able to refer to God as she. They said, look, uh, the report was written by a, a group of women in the Church of England. Say, for us, 
it matters to us that we can not feel alienated and excluded, I think was the language they used. And referring to God as she makes us feel like this is a God who we can believe in. What's at stake? Is that all right? I mean, it's just adding one letter. Does that matter? Uh, what about uh, Dear played a couple of bits of music for us earlier. Do you think one was more or less appropriate for playing in church? Do you think God is more pleased by hammering it out on the organ or rocking it out on the guitar? Does God care? Does God care how long the sermons are? I know you do. <laughs> Does God care? Does it matter how we do these things or are we just free to, to work them out ourselves? And it's issues like that that this passage addresses. Let's start um, by looking at what happens, uh, the facts. The people worshipped an idol. They reject God. That's simply what's happening. They reject God. Verses uh, 1 to 6 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took them, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Now, I don't think they broke the first commandment at this point. You know, have no other gods. I think they're breaking the second commandment, which is don't make an image of the one true God of the first commandment. I don't think they're deliberately turning away from Yahweh, from I am, the Lord in capitals, the God of the Bible. I don't think they're doing that. I think what they're doing is they are inventing their own way of approaching the true God. And I think that becomes obvious when you think about the context. There at the foot of Mount Sinai, there is still a great cloud of brilliant light of the presence of God brooding over the top of the mountain. I don't think that they no longer believe in this God. They can see his cloud right there on the mountain. They can hear the thunder. Their issue is not that they've stopped believing in this God. Their issue is that he is a God up there and they are down here. Now Moses has been the go-between for them, but it's been what? It's been almost six weeks and they haven't seen Moses since he ascended up the mountain and disappeared into the cloud. And they just don't know what's happened to him. So verse 5, Aaron says when they've made the calf, they'll hold a festival, not to the calf. It's not, well, you know what, six weeks, let's find another God. They're saying, no, 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 we will hold a festival to the Lord, verse 5. They want a way for the God who's up there in the storm, the fire, the clouds, to be a God who is down here with them, in their midst, accessible to them. That's what they're after. 
And that is so very ironic, because what's happening at this very moment? What's happening at this moment is chapters 25 to 31. God is giving Moses the detailed description of the Ark of the the Covenant and the, the tabernacle, the tent, which will enable God to be in their midst, in the middle of the camp, a God down here with them. And you see, actually, that what the calf is, is basically, it's another ark, solid gold, made from offerings from the people, and then they set up, what do they do? Burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before it. It's just like another alternative ark. So I think if you ask the Israelites, are you rejecting the God of the Bible? They'd say, are you mad? We're not rejecting him, we're worshipping him. What do you mean rejecting him? Only they're not. Listen to what God says. Uh, Pick it up at verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. God doesn't say they are worshipping me through an idol. He says they are bowing down to an idol. They are sacrificing to, they are worshipping, not me through the idol, but the idol itself. And you see, a different way of engaging with God always, always, always ends up with a different God. Breaking the second commandment always leads you to break the first commandment. In fact, every time you break any of the commandments, you always break the first commandment. But we'll probably cover that when we look at the Ten Commandments later this summer. But when you break the second, you break the first inevitably. Why? Because God is nothing like any of us would imagine. Almost everything God does is just unthinkable. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was in a culture where nobody wanted a physical resurrection because the whole great thing about death was you escaped your body. And yet, God comes back from the dead with a body. Why would you do that? Greeks thought that was ridiculous and stupid. Jews thought it was impossible. But God is never the way we would make him up to be. And so anytime we we try to fashion uh, an image of God, anytime we try and concrete our understanding of God, we always end up with something different from the reality about God because God is nothing like anything you or I would ever imagine because he's not from down here. He's uncreated. He's not part of our world. You see that in Aaron's slip of the tongue, actually, in verse 4. He says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt as soon as he's made the calf. Not, this is how you worship your God, but these are your gods. Now, before we work um, out how God responds, before we look at how God responds to this, it is just worth pausing for a moment and thinking, how on earth does this happen? I mean, look at what God says to Moses at the start of verse 8. They have been quick to turn away. Quick to turn away. You just think, how on earth do you do that? You're looking up at a mountain. Every time you get out of your tent in the morning, there is Mount Sinai with a, with a cloud of, not like a London cloud, a brilliant cloud of the presence of God, flashing lightning, blazing with brilliant presence of divineness and there it is every day how when that is there in front of you do you just forget him turn away from him and disobey him so quickly 
Basically, this is like a groom cheating on his wife during the wedding reception. It's that quick. It seems absolutely incredible to us. But but Paul said in that second reading in 1 Corinthians 10 that this is an important warning for us. Because it's a real danger. So he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It is a very real danger. But we don't see that because there is an enormous cultural chasm between the Israelites back then at Mount Sinai and you and me sat here in 21st century London. We would never, ever in a million years as a church think of worshipping God with a golden calf. Partly because of the price of gold these days. But it's just not something that would be in our minds. Why would you ever do that? But if you said to a hundred different Israelites... Look, God has changed his mind on the second command. He's decided actually it's quite helpful sometimes to have a sort of concrete thing to help you worship God. What would you like to make to, to you know, help you worship God? Pick a hundred different Israelites, ask them the same question. Ninety-nine of them would have said, oh, a calf, a cow, a bull, a calf. Because back then in the ancient Near East, that's how you thought about God. You see it all over the place in archaeology. So it's interesting, in 1 Kings 12, 28, nation of Israel has just split. So the ten tribes of the northern kingdom have, have left just after Solomon's died. And, the, and it's just Benjamin and Judah left in the south with Jerusalem. And so the northern tribes under King Jeroboam, they no longer have access to the temple in Jerusalem. So they need a new temple, basically, so they can worship the one true God. So what does Jeroboam build in 1 Kings twelve twenty eight? A couple of golden calves. Are you absolutely nuts, man? Do you know nothing of Israelite history? I think he does. It's just, it's the natural way you think about God in that culture. You know, it's, God is like that, isn't he? And the danger always lies in what seems so obvious to us that you just don't even think you need to check it in the Bible. I mean, surely that's fine. And I don't think... In our culture, we'd make a golden calf, but we have our versions of the golden calf. We have the ways that we think about God that are so obvious to everybody that we've never really checked whether the Bible actually endorses them. So we often say what matters to God is sincerity. The most important thing in worship is it's authentic, surely. God cares much more about how genuine your heart is when you come before him than whether you say exactly the right words. Everybody knows that. There's a fascinating little exchange in John's Gospel. There's some wonderful um, little interactions between uh, Jesus and a number of individuals. And in John 4, he meets a Samaritan woman. She's from Samaria, the northern part of Israel, that left under Jeroboam. They worship the same God, Yahweh, but they've built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And she says to him in uh, John 4.20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And in our culture, we expect Jesus to answer, Look, 
God cares a whole lot more about relationship than ritual. If your heart is genuinely seeking God, it doesn't matter whether you're in Jerusalem or in Samaria. And he doesn't quite say that. He says in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Ouch. You're wrong. They're right. And then he carries on, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says truth matters. Really matters. It's a critical issue if you're coming before God. So you see, we ask uh, very readily, what pattern of church service makes me feel most comfortable? In London, there are so many churches to choose. Which, which makes me most comfortable? What things help me to connect with God when I'm on my own? What helps me feel spiritually alive? They're not irrelevant questions at all. They're not irrelevant questions, but they are secondary questions. The most important question, the question that has to come first is, what does God's word say? What does God's word say? God is true. Truth matters to him, so we need to listen to him. We need to learn from him about, how does God want me to pray? How does God want us to connect with him in worship? How does God want us to sing to him? We've got to start with God. Actually, when we look at it, we find the Bible gives us enormous latitude. So we can play the organ, and we can rock it out on the guitar, and we can play cheesy 1980s Christian choruses if we so want. We don't. Uh, But we can. (laughs) We can. There is a huge latitude in the Bible. We can have 20-minute sermonettes, or we can have one-hour-long, proper-length sermons. (laughs) But God's word sets the boundaries. He gives us enormous latitude. But if we want to meet with God, then it is God who tells us how we meet with him. So firstly, the people worshipped an idol. They turned away from God. Secondly, God punished the people. So how does God respond to the informal worship service, the alternative worship, the progressive worship, the creative worship of the Israelites? Back to Exodus 32 and verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. They've become like what they worship. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God is angry enough that it is right and just for him to completely obliterate the Israelites and just to take Moses and make a nation from Moses' descendants. Look further down, verses 27 to 28. Then Moses said to them, as Moses has gone down into the camp, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 
3,000 of the people died. Further on, verse 35 on page 92. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron made. God is angry enough that people cutting down their friends and relatives is a right and proportionate response to what they're doing. God is still angry enough that even after that has happened, it is right for him to send a plague on his people. And then verse th- chapter 33, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God is still angry enough that even after all of that, he says, I don't think I can be your God. You are so sinful, I'll just end up destroying you. What do you make of that? It is hard to swallow. One common response is, well, this is the nasty, uh, angry, fire and brimstone God of the Old Testament. Thankfully, we follow the Lord Jesus. The only problem is that doesn't work because the Lord Jesus makes it very clear that he is the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. If we reject this God in Exodus 32, we have to reject Jesus as well. He says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says he's exactly the same as the God of the Old Testament. There's no difference between them in their judgments and their actions. So what do we do with this passage? How do we explain God's behavior? Well, there's a number of things to say. Let me start here. Imagine um, it's uh, 80th birthday of a father. He grew up in poverty and he's always lived a very simple life. He hates waste. He always likes to live simply, eat simply, and give away money. He loves to be generous to others and he hates waste. He, his favorite holiday is always camping and walking because he doesn't like to waste money. He's teetotal. He doesn't like booze. He just doesn't like the sort of loss of control. And he's always just lived simply and tried to, and just loved life like that. But his children decide they don't like camping holidays and they're all quite well off now. And so they take him for his 80th on a booze cruise, on a, on a cruise liner. All-inclusive, boozed up cocktails and wine every night. Immense luxury, champagne being poured into the swimming pool. He hates it. Absolutely hates it. It's everything he hates. And yet they say, but we're doing it for him. You have no, do you have any idea how much this is costing us? It's costing us 5000 for his ticket alone. Frankly, that doesn't matter. They're not doing it for him. Everything they are doing, he hates. You can't claim you're doing it for him if you know that everything about it is contrary to him. They're doing it for themselves. It makes them feel good about themselves to say they've spent this much money. And they're actually just choosing the sort of holiday they like. 
And you see, it doesn't matter what sacrifices we make for God. It doesn't matter how sincere our devotion is to God. We can't claim it is for him if we're doing things that he doesn't like. And actually, the truth is, what the Israelites are doing here is purely selfish and self-serving. They are worshipping God in the way they want to. And they're showing no care at all for what he wants. When it comes to engaging with God, uh, we say, I like to think of God as. And we arrogantly assume that if it feels right to me, if it suits me culturally, if it makes me feel spiritually connected, if it's popular and it's bringing thousands of young people into the church, it must be good. It must please God. But you know what? God has the right to be the way he is. God is not a focus group that we kind of get to choose what he's like. He is God. He has the right to be who he is. And he doesn't need to justify himself to us. And we can't claim we're worshipping him if what we're actually doing is what we want to do. In other words, making a God in our own image. Look too at the moral impact of, of what they do. Not only are they actually serving themselves and ignoring God, but verse 6 says that the festival to the Lord quickly uh, descended into debauchery like a pagan orgy. They sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That is a, that's an orgy sort of a term. Uh, when it talks about dancing in verse 19, it's a, it's a word with strong sexual overtones. And the same goes for the running wild. Verse 25, Moses saw the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. It's a, all moral restraints have gone. And so they had become a laughing stock to their enemies. Now this is important. You see, throughout Exodus, we've seen again and again, um, God say, and so they will know, not just the Israelites, but the Egyptians and the surrounding nations will know that I am the Lord. God's project, his plan, his purpose for Israel was never just about Israel. God redeems this one nation so that all the nations of the world would look in and see something very different from the sort of gods they knew. And so that, as we read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. That's God's intention. And when they descend into a pagan orgy and worship idols and just ignore the uniqueness and the supremacy of God, the other nations rightly just laugh and say, well, what a joke your God is. He's, not, he's no different from ours. Why on earth would we want to follow your God, Israel, when your God's just like our God? We worship in pagan orgies as well. It's just a joke. Truth is, whenever Christians pretend that the God of the Bible is just actually like all the other religions, we lose any attraction to the gospel. Why would anybody want to follow Jesus if he's just like every other God? Why bother? We're always tempted to try and say that actually Christianity is just like all the other religions because it means we get less heat, we get less grief from our culture. But the truth is, if Jesus is just like everybody else, then why would anybody else turn to follow him? Israel's idolatry stops the other nations seeing the glory of God and being saved. And that makes God rightly angry because God loves people. 
And we struggle with that idea, I think, mainly because we think religion is so not like science. Um, we think that uh, science is the sort of thing, things are right, things are wrong. Religion, well, it's personal, I like to think of. You know, it's, it's just a matter of opinion, really. And so we find it appalling. You know, these people are sincerely worshipping and God is getting angry. It's up to them how they want to worship, isn't it? But you see, in other spheres of life, we recognise that sincerity just doesn't cut it. She, um, uh, earlier in the year, I read a, a letter that had been posted online by an oncologist, a cancer um, physician. And it was a very angry letter. Uh, a patient had died. And uh, she wrote the letter basically saying, I'm fed up of this happening. I'm so angry. This person had a treatable cancer. But when they were diagnosed with cancer, instead of coming for treatment, they went to Dr. Google and various well-meaning friends who put them onto all sorts of alternative, unproven diets and sold over the internet wonder cure pills. And they wasted thousands and thousands of pounds. And more importantly, they wasted months and months of time. And by the time they realized that they weren't getting better at all, and came in some desperation to see the oncologist for proper treatment. What had been a treatable cancer was way too advanced for her to do anything. And she was angry. Because this person had died unnecessarily. See, sincerity is just not enough when it comes to treating cancer. You can sincerely believe that these pills that you bought from that lovely site on the internet will cure you. But if they don't have anything that will cure you in the pills, they won't cure you. And God is the only cure for a far more serious condition even than cancer. God is the only cure for death. The only source of eternal life. And so when people devise patterns of worship that take people away from the only God who can give you forgiveness in eternal life, it doesn't matter how sincere those people are. It doesn't matter how popular those ways of worshipping God are. They make the God of the Bible angry because he wants to see people saved, not lost. God is angry because he loves people like you and me. And if he loves people like you and me, he doesn't want to see us lost. How the people are saved from destruction needs a sermon in itself. We're really not going to dig into it tonight. We're just going to say in closing one or two things. Firstly, you'll see that the problem of their sin is not solved here. You'll remember that from the reading. Moses prays for their forgiveness. The people drink the ground up um, calf, the gold dust. The Levites kill lots of them. God's plague kills even more and still we read in chapter 33, 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. You're a stiff-necked people. I might destroy you on the way. And so the passage actually ends in a pretty bleak place. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So having taken off their ornaments to build an idol, they now take off their ornaments in repentance. There is no full and final answer to sin in the Old Testament. And so passages like this, they leave us with this ugly tension of, well, uh, how can people be saved? 
And if you feel unsatisfied and slightly worried at the end of this passage, then you've read it right. See, it's a passage where sin is a big problem and we haven't yet got the solution. But we do see some hints of how sin will be dealt with. Hints aren't the same as the real thing. So the end is pretty bleak, but we do see hints, and the hints focus on the need for a mediator. Someone who will stand between God and sinful humans. And God plays, uh, he doesn't play a game, but he does, he effectively provokes Moses to say a whole lot of things that are important aspects of, of what mediator we need. Uh, the most uh, amazing exchange um, is the one that happens in 3230. Uh, we'll just look at that as we close. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Moses loved the people so much that he said, look, God, you know what? As the leader of this people, I want to say my life for them. He offers to die in their place, to be cast out forever that they might remain God's people. And Moses, as I said, is just a hint. He's just a shadow. But 1,500 years later, the person whose shadow Moses is appears on the stage, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just offer to be cut off for sinful people like you and me. We read as he dies on the cross that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And instead of him ascending the hill outside Jerusalem into a cloud of the brilliance of God's presence, he dies under the darkness of God's judgment, cut off and blotted out by God for us. But we'll think more about that next week. How do we respond to a passage like this? Uh, Well, we thank God for this mediator, but the main thing this passage focuses on, the first half, is, well, it doesn't mean church has got to be boring. It doesn't mean that, you know, you have to feel like you've entered a time warp into the 1850s any time you come to church, or that anything that's innovative or fresh, awful, mustn't happen. You know, better let another church try it and see if they they get struck by lightning first. It's It's not saying that. But it does warn us. It does warn us, it is not enough for me to say, oh, this really makes me feel close to God. It is not enough for us to say, you've got to see it, everybody's doing it. It's amazing how quickly the churches grow that that are doing this. It's not enough uh, for me to say, I finally feel like this is a place where I, I really can connect in worship. None of that is enough. If the way of engaging with God, if the pattern of ministry, if the, the style of service is not what God has explicitly called for in his word, the Bible. This passage doesn't tell us what specific things should be in a church service. It's not what the point of it is. There are lots of passages in the New Testament that tell us how to do church, how to engage with God. What this passage impresses on us with awful force is it matters that we make sure that we take how we connect with God from his word rather than think it's all right to make it up for ourselves. But the truly wonderful thing, of course, is God cares so much about this because it is possible to connect with the true God. 
That's why God cares so much about how we do it. Because the truth about God is accessible to us. A real relationship with God is possible. A genuine connection with God as we, as we meet with him in his word and prayer, as we worship him together, we really are meeting with God. That's why it matters. We're not in a religious free-for-all trying to work it out for ourselves and none of us really having a good idea of who God is. The true God has spoken reliable words to us here. Words that tell us how we can know him by his son, the Lord Jesus. How we can live lives of worship to him through his Holy Spirit. And there is no greater privilege than that. So dig into his word. Learn how to engage with this God. Learn more of his character. Enjoy the privilege. The truth about God, the true God, is knowable by you and me. We're going to pray together in a minute as Simon leads us. I'll just leave us uh, for a minute's quiet to look over what God has been saying to us through his word. And then Simon will take over.